this is Chris and Rick Talk Guitars. Uh, that's Chris over there. Hello. I'm Rick. Um, today we want to talk about Japanese guitars. Yes. Um, it's kind of near and dear to our hearts. Um, and Chris, why don't you kind of start the ball rolling? Because I know this one, this this is kind of your baby. And uh, I kind of want to hear your take on uh, our jumping off point for this topic. Oh, uh, yes. As you said, near and dear to my heart, Japanese guitars. I, I love... First of all, it's a really huge topic, and there's no way we're going to be able to touch on everything. And there's still there's a lot of like misconceptions and a lot of, you know, hearsay Got and it. you know, controversy, if you will. <laughs> and it's just a really fascinating topic to me. Even though you know you'd think maybe I have 40 Japanese guitars, but I don't. I have one, but uh-huh. I've constantly, um, like. I'm way into the history of Japanese electric guitars primarily. They do really cool acoustics, but I think we're going to focus more on the electrics. Okay, cool. But there's so much in there, I don't know if we'll be able to do it all in one episode. And if not, we'll just make it a multi-part episode. I like that. But um, yeah, Japanese guitars. Given Rick and my age, coming up as a guitar player, we were at the perfect point to hit... You know, Japanese, that's kind of like what I refer to as the golden era yeah. from like the late 70s through, you know, the mid 80s is when they really hit their stride and they were making some fantastic instruments. Yeah. I know that when I started looking around in guitar stores for guitars, there were a lot of the, the earlier Japanese guitars, which weren't so good. And they kind of had, you know, they had kind of had a stigma back then too about they're just you know they're just cheap crap you know right. they're not anywhere near american you know the quality of american t- guitars but that was already changing when i even picked up my first guitar it was that they were already starting to come into their own oh yeah so totally yeah and the history of that if we, if we talk about you know let's just talk about electric guitars in japan there was one key moment where you know japan started like copying american guitars and you could trace it to a... There was a NAM show. I think it would have been in, like, 68. Uh-huh. It was when Gibson unveiled... They f- first started doing their reissues of the Black Beauty. And then was it the Deluxe, the Gold Top, that they oh, reissued, yeah. like, in 68? Yeah. Um, the dude from Aria Guitars was there at the uh-huh. show. And he was really enamored with the with the Black Beauty reissue. Uh-huh. So he went back to Japan. And he took they took, like, drawings and pictures and whatnot. And they, they made a copy of the Gibson Les Paul Custom. Interesting. And the, and at that time, when it came out, it wasn't very good. There were some uh-huh. few things they had to dial in, but it just kind of expressed Japan's interest with making, you know, American, you know, copying American models. Got it. So that was like a key, you know, turning point for Japanese guitars. And one thing, to sidestep a little bit, one thing that, that I think is so cool about Japanese guitars is as a collector... There's so many different ways to collect Japanese guitars. There's people out there that really like the early, like, cheesy, garagey, like, you know, original designs. Yeah. Like, you know, Tysco and oh, Kent right, right. and whatever. And they'll collect those. They'll, they'll focus on those. I'm going to collect these. And there's a millions of really cool ones out there. You know, a lifetime supply of if you want to collect those. And then there's the people who like to collect, you know, historically accurate reproductions or copies right and there's plenty of those out there and then there's people who just want to get a really good guitar for you know inexpensively and now in you know 2019 you can get a really good vintage guitar at a really good price that's really well made yeah and i kind of fit into all of those i appreciate them all so um me too there's no shortage of like you know nerding out collecting (sighs) and you know learning about this stuff because one thing you know, I'd like to point out too is we could talk about this subject and hit on a few points. And 
we might be, you know, some of this might be inaccurate or whatever. Oh, yeah. You're talking, you're talking about, you know, time has passed and we're taking from different sources. So, you know, there's, you know, there's no way to tell how accurate it is, but there's a few Japanese guitar truths that you can focus on. And the, the one about Aria and the Les Paul reissue, I believe, is a, is a factoid. Cool. Yeah. And like you're saying, I mean, disclaimer, it's like... Uh, yeah, we're we're not authorities on this, and we don't we will get some stuff wrong. But he, Chris pointed something out that's really cool: is he and I came of age when the Japanese market was really taking off as uh, a, a cool alternatives for young people starting out on the guitar to get decent guitars um, that were copies of the ones we eventually wanted to get um, right. at at lower prices and. You know, we've talked about that before. We've touched on it, but I, I'm one of those guys. I went and bought up a, a cheap copy of a Les Paul Black Beauty because I couldn't afford, you know, a real Les Paul. And it played well. It was a bolt-on neck, so it wasn't one of the really good ones. But, right. um, but it was good enough to get me going and get me started and, and really whet my appetite for what I really wanted, which was a Gibson Les Paul. Right. You know? No, exactly. It was just like the stopgap. Yep. And Gibson should have realized that. And like, yeah. That th- these are, you know, these are little stopovers while these little guitar players learn their chops and eventually they're on their way over yep. to us. And I'm sure that was, for a lot of people, it was a gateway guitar. <laughs> and um, so, well, how to break this up? It's, yeah. It's, it's pretty daunting. Um, we talked about like when the copy era started, which would have been the very early seventies, late sixties, yeah. maybe even. You know, by the time it took them to roll those out, yeah. And there were a few things that the Japanese. It took the Japanese a while to get dialed in with the copies, and and it just upped the level of you know the quality of the instrument. And one of them was the way that even in a bolt-on neck, these first early copies had a rounded off neck where it joins the body and it was quite a ways off the top and there was a dude who worked for Ibanez who became very influential in a lot of the cool Ibanez guitars that came along his name was Jeff Haselberger I think or something like that Uh and he said hey your neck is wrong where it's attached to the body you need to flatten it the edges and, and put it flush with the top once they started doing that, the quality of their guitars just, you know, it got they got more playable, cool. they were easy to set up better, and they were more, you know, accurate reproductions. Yeah. And that's like, if you're looking on eBay or something and you want a, you know, a good guitar, that's one of the things I always look for because I know the, the ones with the rounded off necks where the fretboard meets got the body yeah. are usually funky. You yeah. can't, I mean, they can be cool in their own way if you want to, you know, if you... You want to play different kind of music. You want a funky sounding guitar. Yeah. Cool. But I would not, you know, I, I personally would avoid those. Yeah. Because I'm looking when if I'm looking for a Les Paul, Japanese Les Paul copy, I want one that's a little bit more accurate. Yeah. And I'd probably get a set neck, too. But that's beside the point. <laughs> but we'll get into the um, Ibanez because that's a really yeah. big, you know, factor in especially in that era, early era. of yep. guitars. But, yep. but I remember the biggest one for me that turned me on to Japanese guitar as an early guitar player Uh where I started to look at Japanese guitars the same way I would look at Gibson or Fender guitars, I think was Yamaha. I think they were the first one that rolled out their original designs that were, um, that would, you know, they could hang on the wall side by side with Gibson's and and a lot of professional players saw that and they started playing them. But one thing I didn't know then 
which I do now is given, you know, because of the advent of the internet is during that time when Yamaha was making their SG series, uh-huh. which we know here in this country as the SBG series. Right. They had to change the name because of Gibson. Uh-huh. So those were the double cutaway Les Paul style guitars, super heavy, super cool, and super well made. Yeah. But during that time, they were also churning out for their own and other markets, like dead copies of Gibson, yeah. you know, Gibson Les Pauls, SGs, and whatnot. Right. And you can go online and see them and they're really cool I mean it's like they'll have this they'll be like a, a really good knockoff of a, a Norland Aero Les uh-huh. Paul they have the name like they'll, they'll be called like Studio Lord or Lord right. Player instead of the Les Paul script right and they're cool and they're and you know there's a lot of them on the internet people can buy those now but back then we didn't even i unaware of the existence of these guitars yeah because me it, too it was a market that we had no no way to you know be a part of yeah unless you happen to travel abroad which I didn't yeah me either but yeah that I think I would echo that same thing I mean, Yamaha was one of the first companies that I saw making uh, their own body styles but also just the craftsmanship of the guitars was just so good like those SBG guitars you talk about yeah Santana played one for a while and I remember in the 80s like everybody was playing Yamaha guitars like it it was really prevalent for like big you know all the big bands were playing at the time in the 80s like new wave bands and things like that were playing Yamaha guitars and um yeah I think it's a testament to but we're talking about electric guitars but I want to go back to to like I remember when I was young and I was looking at guitars and I Takamini acoustics that were the knockoffs of the Martins really impressed me I would I had friends that had like a 12 string or a six string dreadnought and they were just great guitars Mm -hmm. like the quality was there they sounded great and and, uh, so you know that was kind of my one of my gateways into those guitars or my insights into those guitars were those early acoustics that I came into contact with, or even the Yamahas. The Yamahas for are, that matter, are, are really, really interesting to me yeah. because the orange label, which would be like late 60s, early 70s, the orange label Yamaha acoustics, yeah. really good sounding and good playing yeah. guitars. But some of those guitars are... You know, they're plywood tops, too. Yeah. And Yamaha said, all right, we're going to take a we're going to take a plywood top. We're going to learn how to make it sound really good. And, and some of did. them really did. And I was yeah. blown away. Like, you're telling me that this is a plywood top? Right. And it was. And they sound really good. Yeah. So I, I personally appreciate all the acoustic instruments, but I didn't have that much experience with them back yeah. then. I mean, I was so focused on electric. Right. And I probably would have because in later years, I've played a lot of Takaminis and whatnot. And they're great. And as a kid, I would have been so far out of the context of playing a real Martin or something like that. that those were probably the best things that would have been on my radar would have been, yeah. you know, the the um, the Japanese oh, yeah. flat tops yeah. from that era. Because there were some great ones, like you say. Um, well, it's interesting, too, how, like, the evolution of, of all this stuff happened with the big ones, companies like Gibson and Fender. Talk a little bit about, like, the Squire how the Squire stuff started and the, and the Epiphone stuff started in, in relation to like kind of these, I mean, there's some, there's some stuff coinciding with, with the Japanese market. And then these big companies also, it was all to placate, the need for cheaper guitars, essentially, right. or, or, you know, bean counter stuff too, where it's like, Hey, you know, you know, not there's everybody can afford. We're not, yeah. We're not appealing to that. We have to get on the ball. Exactly. I'll do that. But let's first, let's talk about something that I kind of don't want to talk about, but you almost have to talk about in the context do of it. Japanese guitars. 
is the lawsuit. Oh, right, right. And this is one of those things that if you use the word lawsuit on the internet, you can get piled on by people. And I find it fascinating, but I don't understand it at all why they do that. Basically, in the early, the late 60s to the early 70s, Japan was churning out all these copies, like dead-on copies, as close to dead-on as they could right. get them. And in the meantime, you know, Gibson and Fender are sitting back going, ouch, you know, these guys are like, these stuff, this, the quality of these isn't too bad, and it's starting to affect our, you know, you know, people buying our guitars. So they started sending out letters, like, the most famous one that I'm going to focus on is Ibanez. Ibanez and Gibson, they're, you know, the lawsuit between uh-huh. them. So they, sometime in the, like, the, the mid-70s, they started sending letters, you know, threatening letters to Ibanez saying, hey, knock it off. And around 77, I believe it was, is when they actually took took action. Uh. And there was a lawsuit in place against um, Ibanez uh-huh. for, you know, copy guitars. More specifically, they found, and, and this set precedent, so it's pretty important, they found that the headstock of a guitar can be trademarked. That's uh, what this lawsuit, like, set. Got it. So, in 77, there was a show, I believe a NAM show or something, where Ibanez had a booth, and Gibson was going to swoop down and serve them with, you know, and gonna just basically clean them out, you know, here, trademark infringement, we're taking these guitars, turn them to sawdust, whatever the fuck. <sighs> but... As it happened, is sometime in 76, Ibanez changed their headstocks uh, without, you know, it could have been the result of the threatening letters or they just could have been the natural course of like, we're, we're going to be more original. Interesting. But they changed them. So when Gibson showed up to take their guitars, they had the different headstocks. That's funny. So it was totally, you know, a moot point on that. And, and I get this information for, there's a really great book by Michael Wright. Uh-huh. Um, called Guitar Stories, Volume 1. Oh, cool. And he actually talks to Gibson and to Jeff Haselberger from uh-huh. um, Ibanez, uh-huh. and he gets both sides of the story, but neither of them can re- remember right. 100% correctly. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, you know, whatever. Yeah. But the, the takeaway from it, this is nowadays people get really offended if you use the word <laughs> lawsuit in a you know to reference a guitar and it doesn't fit their definition right. of lawsuit right and my point being is I don't remember there ever being some sort of convention <laughs> where people showed up you didn't get in the memo. Geneva and said let's oh wait, this is what lawsuit will mean <laughs> I mean the lawsuit involved Ibanez and Gibson right but the key takeaway from the lawsuit was that headmark headstocks are trademarkable now and from that point on guitars coming from Japan into this country could no longer have those headstocks without fear of being sued sure so my point is if I'm having a conversation with somebody about vintage excuse me Japanese guitars and they use the word lawsuit I'm perfectly able to to parse what they're talking exactly. about without correcting them right. and saying, no, it's not, you're not talking about an Ibanez guitar. And it's just, it's, it's so ridiculous. Yeah. You know what I mean? The whole English language and, you know, human language is designed to communicate with people. And if they're communicating to me and I know what they mean, what's the fucking problem? I don't need to correct them and say, you are incorrect. And, and also there is no correct term. No. And I'm interested in why people get so offended by this. So I kind of probed a couple of these people who Uh are like, you know, like freaking out. Yeah. And they tell me that it's because people use that term to try to get more money out of a guitar. Like, you know, this is a lawsuit guitar. And I don't understand that either, because if you buy a guitar, it's based on the guitar's, you know, specifications. Right. Right. And something that's a lawsuit guitar someone says a lawsuit guitar you look at it okay it's got a bolt-on neck right it's not as desirable as a set neck it's got this it's got you know a plywood top it's got blah 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 yeah so you can't really unless you're 
an ignorant person dealing with another ignorant person, you're not going to get more money out of someone by throwing yeah. that term around. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a, it's a can of worms. I opened it, but I <laughs> I love it. I did want to give my two cents on that lawsuit. Yeah. Thing. Because you, it, because after that lawsuit, it's it is an interesting and important historical moment because after that point. The headstocks changed on this country. They totally. still were. They still had the open book style in in Japan and other areas. They have, you know, still to this day they're using the open book for guitar models, and they can do it all they want. They just can't import them into this yeah. country or export them. Yeah, and to your point, it's it, we've talked about this silly competitive nature of human beings, and especially dudes and guitar players as. as it, 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 it's it's really bad in in those communities. It exactly. It's just some dickhead thing. It's like the blues society, you know, yeah. saying what is blues That's and what's not blues. Not blues. Yeah, um, and exa- all it means is exactly that guitar is copying enough of the characteristics, the headstock particularly yeah. of this guitar. That's why all these luthiers. We'll talk about that. <laughs> um, have to change the headstock shape of their guitar. Like if you make tellies, for instance, that that telly headstock has to be a little different than the Fender telly headstock because if it's not different enough, Fender's going to sue you because yeah, they own the right to that shape, that yeah. headstock shape. Um, but yeah, it's just funny. Uh, yeah, it's the shitstorm on the internet that it doesn't take much anyway these days to get people riled up. But um, right. but yeah, that um, I think that's a cool tie-in actually to the. Um, to how these companies were dealing with uh, the the influx of these guitars coming in from Japan, not only Japan but other places too, but Japan primarily because they were they were honing it, man. They were like getting it down. They're saying, no, we're going to build, you know, have the same quality or as close to the same quality as we can, and 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 they did. I mean, they dialed this stuff in, and, and like you were saying before, prominent players were playing Yamaha guitars. You know, Santana was playing one of those SBG guitars for a yeah, while, and they were playing their original designs. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And Ibanez was in it too. Steve Miller was playing Ibanez guitars in the seventies. A lot yeah. of people were, but um, Grateful Dead. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so you know, Gibson and Fender were you know rightfully getting you know, prodded to like up, up their game. And instead, like, you know, I mean, I guess you got to protect your brand obviously with litigation, but you know, the, the, the thought should have been, Hey, let's really focus on our own shit. And, and, they, and they, they did in a yeah. way, you know, and what I think is yeah. really kind of funny is like, well, how they dealt with that, like going after that end of the market is, you know, Gibson in the seventies are like, all right, We've created the mall, the Marauder, a bolt neck guitar, right. and we can manufacture this price point. And they put it out there, and I don't know how successful it was, but right away the Japanese came out with a copy of the Marauder. So it's like, <laughs> nice try, Gibson, but here you go. This one's two hundred dollars cheaper. Exactly. Deal and with it's that. Probably as good. So it's probably yeah. really annoying. They were like a little mosquito, right? Like you right. know, buzzing at there. But the one thing that should never be forgotten about Japan and their guitar manufacturing is. They lit a fire under the ass of everybody, yeah. you know. And yeah. those Takaminis you mentioned, Martin. I mean, Martin was going through a rough period in the in late sixties and seventies right. too. So suddenly, it was not okay to rest on your laurels. Yeah. So if you really wanted to be like, we are the thing that they're copying. You want us? It better be a lot better. Exactly. You know I mean? And if you want to go after the market, they they did. You have to make something as cool. Yeah. And I think they did, and I I don't think it worked as well as it should have. But I was really a fan of how Fender and Gibson dealt with that in models like the the Fender Lead series, the yeah. Fender Bullet series, yeah. which actually was eventually made in Japan. Yeah. But th- I'm a fan of those models. I thought that should have worked, but I guess the market with the market's response to that was no, we want something that looks like a Les Paul. 
or oh, that looks like a Stratocaster. We don't want an American-made something that's just like not a full Stratocaster. Right. You know, left some things off. I was exactly the other way. You know, if I was a kid back then and I had like this amount of money to spend on a guitar, you can get this really shiny Les Paul, Japanese Les Paul copy of a Les Paul standard, or you can get the Marauder. I would have taken the Marauder. Yeah. I was like, I was brand guy back right, then right. to the point of where that's, I'm heading to Gibson. My Everything yep. I do from here on out is my road to Gibson or Fender. So anything else. Yeah. And I did appreciate the quality of um, the Japanese guitars then too, but the copies were more like, you know. It would have been a different story, like talking about a Yamaha SBG guitar, totally. because that's its own thing. You know, totally. it's like I'll go for that over a Les Paul if it speaks to me enough. But the copies, you know, it was I would rather have the, the Gibson's attempt to to satisfy my beginner dollar. Exactly, because that's the brand that we grew up watching our heroes play. You know, our Fender and Gibson. Like I remember distinctly seeing like. Hendrix playing a Strad and like the Thin Lizzy dudes playing Les Pauls and like, oh, I want that guitar. And, and exactly, Gibson built a brand that was known for quality, known as an industry leader in, in uh, guitars or just musical instrument manufacturing overall. Same with Fender. And so they were the storied brands when you and I were coming up. And uh, exactly, these other knockoffs were essentially gateways to that eventual destination you know right. i know that's what it was for me and and i think it was for a lot of people and um that's why it, it's it's really interesting to look at those guitars and i had i had a mateo too strat at one time uh-huh. it was it was a decent guitar too um but again it was like that's the cool thing about those guitars too is they they're just in their own right certain models are su- super cool like the yamaha guitars we talked about but a lot of the other ones are just a gateway to like you know okay this is what i can afford now and eventually i'm going to be able to get to that strat or whatever that right but yeah but i was the same way i I was i was brand conscious um and you know to be fair some of it is is kind of romance and stuff like that but i really believe that a lot of it is justified because like i said before um these companies go through ups and downs but these particular companies gibson and fender they've earned their place in the marketplace as being you know go-to companies to buy this gear you know right and you expect that quality and that's when you know when quality control issues do come up you could i mean you have to point to things and say like you have you have the history you have the tooling you've you know you've made all these things why why does this look like this yeah you know And, and that's completely legitimate yeah so i think you know, uh, there was a lot of, I mean, even how much I love Japanese electric guitars, there's a lot of, like, people making claims that, you know, are just kind of, I, I don't buy. Like, this ex-Japanese Les Paul copy is a, the Les Paul Slayer. It, it slays right. it on every conceivable right. level. Well, maybe, but let's look at it. Does yeah. it really? Yeah. Because some will and some won't. I yeah. mean, and that's another fascinating thing about Japanese guitar manufacturing is the way... They have a tiered system, model system within each company. So I always liken it to, if you remember back in like the 70s and you got the the Sears catalog and you'd see like a, a, a guitar outfit or something. Right. And you had good, better, best. Right. They have that kind of tiered system for every model in their, in their lineup. So yeah. it's like... You know, you want a Les Paul copy, and it starts like with, you know, let's say 350 series, you know, 350, and then it goes up to like 900 or 1200. Right. 
every step you go up is going to have better specifications, better materials, and just more desirable features. Yeah. And so they're able to you know hit different parts of the market. So somebody like has an Ibanez bolt neck guitar and is going to say you know which is from the lower series of that particular model range and is going to say this this will slay any you know Les Paul. It's like when you look at them side by side, you know it's not. You know? Probably not. Yeah. You know you go to the upper end of the. And this is to sidetrack just a little bit. One of uh-huh. the reasons why it's so hard to talk about these instruments uh-huh. is you have multiple factories over there making sometimes the same instruments for different you know distributors. Oh, right. And plus, the names of the on the headstocks are were often the, the names of the distributors. So they could vary. They could be any from one to different five different things on the headstock, but they're the Got same it. guitar. So following that stuff gets really confused. You know, yeah. Ibanez is a Greco, is, you know, oh, right. something else. Astoria is a blah, blah, blah. And even within then, you take a Greco, was made in factory A, factory B, factory C. And then even further, the the tuners on this Greco were made in factory D, E, F, G. So it really gets really confusing right. really fa- fast. But you can look at the specific instrument, yep. and see how it's built. There's certain features, and you can, if the model isn't anywhere on the instrument, you can pretty much narrow down where it where it sits in the model hierarchy. And you know, things that they do is like the bolt-on neck is always for the lower, you know, the lower in the Les yep. Paul style. For and sure. the fender, the bolt-on is part of you know, yeah, is part of the deal. deal. Yeah. So you know, the the way the neck is bolted to it, the top. I mean, is it solid or is it pressed top? Yeah. You know, with a, a hollow press top. And as you go up, the specs get higher and higher. And, you know, during that time, the 80s, late 70s and early 80s, they were more historically correct than the Gibson's standards of that. That was before Gibson's reissue program. So, you know, some of the higher level ones had a long neck tenon. They had lacquer, which to me is a very important part of like A being a guitar, you know. And, you know, they were just way more historically correct. So when you get to those, you can start saying, yeah, well, this slays this you know gibson standard and you can and you might be right yeah but to just you know say i mean it's i always find it really amusing you can go on ebay right now and do a search for vintage ibanez uh-huh. les paul uh-huh. and you'll see a 900 hundred dollar bolt-on neck ibanez <laughs> les paul listed for sale right up there and some of them may have been sold for that and if you keep looking look for greco you'll see a greco guitar with a set neck lacquer finish fret edge binding all the f- deluxe features uh-huh. of like a historically correct instrument for the same amount of money that's funny and yeah the only thing you can attribute that to is just not people just not knowing right that, that how you know the, the japanese instruments market worked in the yeah. manufacturing so that's really fascinating for me it's super turbo nerdy stuff <laughs> and as i said you'd think like my love of japanese instruments would mean i have a whole room for them i don't i have one guitar yeah i have one a uh, les paul it's an aria pro two les paul copy from 1980 and it's, it's probably guitar. upper mid-range level it has uh-huh. um it's not lacquer but it does have fret edge binding it's got the long neck tenon and um, it's just it's all it's very much like a Norland era Les Paul, yeah. except for it's got a longer neck tenon. But it's a two piece maple neck. Um, yeah, they're it's a great they guitar. manufactured so many different things. So I mean, weird models that you wouldn't even think. I mean, they they made like probably like knockoffs of like lead series guitars or yeah. you know like the um, Gibson's undesirable like. You know, the S1s and, you know, uh-huh. Marauders and things like that. They, they copied them. Yeah, but to your point, I think it, there's there's still just ignorance out there about this tiered system and about w- which guitar really is worth 
You know what I mean? Exactly. Like you just pointed out, it's like this, this Greco really, I mean, in terms of its appointments, that is closer to this layer than this, you know, Ibanez that's got a bolt on neck that is going for the same price. Right. And I'm not that's dissing. Just, no, 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 not at all. It's not a dissing of those guitars. It's just, it's just knowing that there are different tiers and, and they're, and based on that, that you, that's the true evaluation, like you're saying, because the tier correlates to the materials and the quality of right, that right. guitar. And so, and again, I, I just think it's awesome that a lot of this really just had to light a fire under these other big companies to say, well, shit, we got to get our shit together eventually, yeah. you know, and I'm sure the immediate responses are like litigation and all this other bullshit rather than, you know, we've seen this with Gibson, right? They've veered so far away from just, you know, you want to dope slap the guy and say, look, just focus on the quality of your stuff, man. You've already got the brand established. Just focus right. on the quality of your stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, if you think about it, too, is like probably both Gibson and Fender's reissue pro programs were probably a direct result right. of these, you know, some of the higher end Japanese, like, you know, historically correct models. They're like, shit, people want this. Well, stuff. they even partnered that's, with Japanese companies to make reissues. Right? right. And that's another thing to talk about is that the made in Japan, a lot of the made in Japan reissues are sought after because they're so good. Oh, they're right? great. Like the yeah. strats and tellies and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was really smart of Fender in that in, in that case to bring in yeah. Japanese. I mean, they shopped around. They found, you know, good Japanese company that was already making Exactly. Great You're already said, doing right, this. You might as well, well make you, our guitar. We'll give you some sandpaper and a couple more tools <laughs> that you know how, and you can make these for us. Yeah. And, you know, um, we're going to run out of time here very shortly, so we're going to have to make this a multi-part series. Yeah, part, for sure, man. A multi-part series, but um, definitely uh, there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, one, speaking about... The Japanese reissue program, uh -huh. and something that happened to me that was really kind of eye-opening, even though I'd always had a, a deep love for the Japanese reissued, you know, Fender instruments, uh -huh. is I was working in a guitar shop that got a, a genuine early '60s Fender Esquire custom, beautiful red, you know, from the early '60s Esquire one pickup, and it had you know the double bottom body killer neck the thing was just beautiful i fell in love with that guitar and at the same time they had a reissue 60s i forget which model it is but it's the um japanese reissue of the telecaster custom which is the double bound oh, yeah. red uh -huh. so they were kind of the same thing except for the esquire had one pickup that thing was so close to the just the essence of this super cool That's guitar cool. it was like hats off totally to, um for them for paying that much attention to detail and that was the thing when they first reissued started doing the reissue program in japan the uh, the American, you know, manufacturers here, uh -huh. uh, uh, the people who are making the guitars for Fender, uh -huh. were kind of blown away. They did things right that Fender didn't do in the USA reissues. For example, at the twelfth fret, there's uh -huh. two dots uh -huh. on the fretboard. The uh -huh. distance on the USA ones is off compared to uh -huh. the originals, and the Japanese got it right. Dang! So they were like sticklers for like little Detail. details like that. So in some ways, I mean, they helped with that. I don't know if if we finally adjusted on our right. end to get that, them right one thing though that's i always found really interesting even on you know higher up guitars in the japanese um manufacturers a lot of times they don't pay that much attention to like electronics oh, like you yeah, get it pretty yeah. high up there and you open it up and it's right. got really shitty pots in it and it's like right. you know what not an extra 25 cents <laughs> to get good pots yeah so that's one thing i don't know I haven't been under the hood of a lot of super, super high-end ones, you know? Yeah. But uh, um, most of the ones that are up there, it's like, yeah, you should have just gone the extra 
mile input a little bit better. Exactly, pop. especially if but you're... But that's, yeah. I mean, as far as in the context of an instrument, that's really easy to yeah. rectify. Same with pickups. I know uh, there's a lot of like the Les Paul style, the Gibson style guitars and the Fender style guitars that have desirable, collectible pickups uh-huh. from Japan. Like I know that, um, is it the, the Greco... And Bernie both have, I think, a series of vintage pickups that are really desirable. Oh, cool. And I think it's the gray bobbin strap pickups for the um, Fender style. I don't know. I actually, actually, I don't want to go out in this territory and say something <laughs> completely wrong. Right. Just I do realize that there, there are collectible pickups um, from J- Japan, even though on the, the, the basic... You know, especially the basic Fender style guitars, uh-huh. I've never been really impressed with their pickups. Yeah. I mean, those are usually, if I'm going to play one of those, I'm probably going to swap the pickups Exactly. Out. And I think that's what tri- what normally happened. Because I'm the same way. I remember playing some guitars that were Japanese guitars back in the day and, and playing through amps and going, ah, these pickups sound kind of funky. They're, yeah, and just it it seems like that the electronics especially were kind of not as up to snuff as they could have been or maybe should have been but right. but the quality of the guitars man they they did they were like they were getting it right man and 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 it, again it was it was such a cool thing for people coming up in our era for, to have the availability of those guitars so that we could get something that was affordable that was made with some level of quality and uh and ironically now there's there's a market well seemingly there's a market for everything now right yeah, i mean it, before it was like, you know now 70s guitars in general are like you know classic you know they're and some classic of them are, some of them it's yeah. warranted totally and that's the thing that's cool about japanese vintage instruments quotation mark around the vintage but i yeah. guess they are vintage yeah. now yeah. is uh-huh. you know right now we're pretty spoiled as guitar players i mean people rave about and I've played a few, and, and I can definitely see that, you know, they're worth raving about. Is that, what is it, the Squire Classic Vibe? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Those, those are really cool instruments, especially yeah. for the money. But now you have a choice. You could get, like, a Classic Vibe if you want the Classic thing. Or you could get, like, something from, like, the late 70s or early 80s. You could get, like, a an Ibanez Roadstar yeah. or, a, you know, or maybe a um, Blazer, which is, you know, a Fender-style guitar made in a, you know, in a really good factory with really good parts and it's vintage yeah so you have choices like you know there i'm point. trying to think of a few of my other you know kind of off the radar brands that are re- i think are really good deals uh-huh. there is a company that one of the the factories that made a lot of the guitars was the matsumoku i think uh-huh. that's how you say it uh-huh. they made tons of brands like they did the um gibson epiphone japanese line they did like wa- some washburn stuff a million, a million different right. ones. The Aria Pro was them, but they also made a brand called Westbury. Oh. And I remember that being in a guitar store in the seventies and um, looking at one of the instruments, which looked really cool. And, and a salesperson come over and goes, "That's a really great guitar. We just got that in there." And he was telling me that this is going to be the next Gibson, like this guitar. And he re- he seemed like he, he was either bullshitting trying to get me to right. buy that or it seemed like he believed it yeah and i'm like yeah that didn't really happen <laughs> but you know maybe being the next aria pro yeah, or something I for mean, sure and those guitars are really cool i mean i was just looking at some the other day they, 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 if you look up westbury uh-huh. it's a really cool kind of les paul jr as huh. no frills guitar cool there's a million of them like that I and mean, you can get it for 250 if you're patient yeah. maybe you know maybe three four hundred bucks worth every penny cool. i mean it's vintage you know and yep. it's it's cool. It's got some history behind it. There's a lot of that shit out there. I mean, the the um, the vintage Fender reissue stuff uh-huh. is always going to be really pricey. Yeah. That stuff is super pricey. Yeah. But, you know, Fernandez, they make really good Fender-style guitars. Do. The same factory a lot of times. Yep. 
And you can get those for a lot more reasonably yeah. priced. And so. I know a guy that has a Tokai and a Fernandez Strat that he's had since the 80s or something. And they're great guitars. They're they just, really are. Yeah. Well, that's a great point. I mean, you know, there's a vintage market for that stuff, too, where you can get stuff that's for relatively good prices that's, you know, good stuff and, and vintage and all that. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Well, yeah, like Chris said, this is a big topic, and we'll probably touch on this a few more times and a few more episodes because it's so fun to talk about. But um, we, um, again, the, the takeaways for us are that a lot of these guitars are just really cool. Uh, they were doing it right. Um, they were trying to make... You know, the, the quality was, was there, everything was there, and you could get these guitars for, you know, a fraction of the price it would cost you for the real thing. So, yeah. They kind of upped the global guitar game yep. and made everybody accountable for, totally. you know, if you want to... If you want to sell these instruments at this price point, you got to be you got to beat this quality yeah. or meet or beat this quality, yeah. which was a really good thing for guitar players everywhere. Totally. Cool. So uh, we're going to sign off, but uh, go to chrisandricktalkguitars.com. Uh, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, rate us. Give us good reviews. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.